1: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To
2: contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 17th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. 48 years ago today on Tuesday, the 17th of May, 1974, four car bombs exploded. The first bomb went off that evening in Parnell Street at 5.28pm. Two minutes later, a second bomb exploded in Talbot Street at half past five. Two minutes after that, a third bomb went off on South Leinster Street near Trinity College at 5.32pm. An hour and a half later, just before seven o'clock, a fourth bomb exploded in the centre of Monaghan.
3: More than two thirds of troubles related deaths occurred over 40 years ago. And it is increasingly difficult for the courts to provide families with the answers they are seeking.
2: The families of the victims of the Dublin Monaghan bombing will mark the 48th anniversary this morning. The 33 people who died included a pregnant woman. They and the 300 people injured 48 years ago today will be remembered. And families of the victims will, as always, call for justice.
3: If we fail to act now to properly address, acknowledge and account the legacy of the Troubles, we will be condemning current and future generations to yet further division, preventing reconciliation at both the individual and societal level.
2: The British government is going to act today. It will bring forward a bill that coincides with the 48th anniversary of the Dublin Monaghan bombings, and this will give an amnesty and immunity from prosecution to the killers
3: in a way that supports information recovery and reconciliation complies fully with international human rights obligations and responds to the needs of individual victims and survivors, as well as society as a whole.
2: The Northern Secretary, Brandon Lewis, has not heard what uh, the families of uh, the victims of uh, the Dublin Monaghan bombings and other atrocities have been saying. Or if he has heard what they've been saying, he's decided not to listen. I
3: hope we can all agree that this is an issue that is of the utmost importance to the people of Northern Ireland and beyond. It is critical that all involved continue to engage in a spirit of collaboration in order to deliver practical solutions on this most sensitive of issues. However, it is increasingly clear to us that the ongoing retributive criminal justice processes are far from helping, in fact impeding, the successful delivery of information recovery, mediation and reconciliation that could provide a sense of restorative justice for many more families is commonly the
2: case. That's Brandon Lewis now since speaking there in July these proposals have been toned down it's thought that the bill that will be brought forward today will leave open our route to prosecution if individuals are deemed not to have earned their immunity and Brandon Lewis says that uh, there will be no automatic access to immunity but there are a lot of uh, concerns of course and today on uh, the 48th anniversary of uh, the Dublin Monaghan bombings let's speak to Mark. Margaret Irwin, the coordinator for the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Good morning to you, Margaret, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, You'll be marking the day today, as you always do in Talbot Street, with a a wreath-laying ceremony and a a number of uh, speeches. The Taoiseach will be in attendance as well.
4: That's right, yes. We're very glad to be able to um, hold our wreath-laying ceremony today because obviously we haven't been able to hold it uh, for the last two years. So it's actually three years since we held our last actual wreath-laying ceremony. The Lord Mayor of Dublin uh, will lay a wreath, as will the Taoiseach Hall Martin, and also the luck of Monaghan County Council, and um, the um, luck of Shannon and Mark Daly. So they will all lay wreaths today and um and say a few words and uh maureen o'sullivan the former td independent td for dublin central will uh, deliver the annual oration today and we'll have music from uh, piper owen Dillon and floatist uh, cormac brannock
2: very good uh, and i'm sure we'll be seeing much uh, about that and uh, people will remember Uh, The events uh, in different ways uh, as uh, they occurred 48 years ago. But uh, your group has for so many years now been looking for justice for the forgotten uh, in the hope that they will never be forgotten. It it, it appears uh, that the British government uh, on this 48th anniversary will be asking all of us to forget about these events to some degree, uh, certainly in terms of uh, the judicial uh, system.
4: Yes, indeed. It's ironic that uh, this bill is being brought forward in the British Parliament on the anniversary of the day that saw the greatest loss of life on this island during the Northern conflict. Uh, We have no, um, you know, we we have no great uh, trust whatsoever in the British government or Brandon Lewis. We will wait to see uh, what the bill contains. Um, Obviously we are very sceptical about it and I note one of the clips you played there was was him saying that the judicial system isn't working. Uh, Well, why is it not working? Why has it been necessary for people to uh, go to the courts? Which is a dreadful option because it delays everything for years. But the reason that people have been going, families have been taking cases is because the british government have refused to cooperate and refused to provide information on all their so many of their very important files on army tours of duty for example they're all closed for 84 years and 100 years so we would not have confidence in anything being brought forward As I say, we will, when the bill is uh, brought before Parliament, we'll have to get a chance to study it Mm. and see exactly what it contains.
2: Right. So when Brandon Lewis says uh, that the objective is to help individuals and family members uh, to get information about troubles related deaths and serious injuries, Uh, you don't accept that that is his motivation, that instead uh, he's trying to give cover uh, to members of uh, the security forces in the British Army uh, who would have been involved in illegal activities.
4: That's right, yes. We believe that uh, it's to give cover to the veterans uh, because, as you know, many of their cases were never even investigated and um, you saw what happened in the court last year where uh, the case of a soldier collapsed because he had just simply at the time given a statement to the RMP which was the Royal Military Police and that was sort of like tea tea and uh, sympathy oh. and uh, it, it they weren't um, questioned under caution and therefore now all these years later it's not possible to uh, to uh, prosecute them so it's it's really a very very Uh, It's a sleight of hand, we believe, Mm. uh, the the introduction of this uh, type of legislation, because there's just no need. uh, If if the truth were to be told, there would be no need for any money to be spent or cases going to court or anything like that. Obviously, we're hoping very much that our Operation Denton investigation will continue. Uh, We can't be sure of that, of course.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, there is are so many uh, atrocities uh, that are, are being uh, investigated under uh, that project. Uh, when I spoke to you last week, Margaret, uh, there was scant detail of what was being proposed. We were being told, though, that people would have to seek uh, immunity and that there was this possibility that it, it, it would be deemed by somebody somewhere that they hadn't earned their immunity. Uh, have you had any more information on on what is being proposed what will be brought forward today in this bill
4: No I just um I've just had a chance to glimpse really I have a glance over um an article I think uh, it's in um I don't know whether it's from BBC mm-hmm. website but uh I was sent that this morning by the Patrick Centre. I haven't really had a chance to study it in any great detail, mm. but I don't think there's that much detail in it anyway. No. I think they are proposing to set up some kind of information recovery body, mm. but what that will uh, entail remains to be seen. Um, But, uh, of course, not only, we believe not only are they trying to cover up for the deeds of some of their veterans, but also they're trying to uh, prevent um, the truth about collusion from emerging, which, of course... Is uh, I think it's far uh, far more concerned to them actually mm. than their veterans.
2: Yeah, and certainly uh, when it comes to the Dublin bomb, uh, Dublin Monaghan bombings, uh, there would have been uh, collusion uh, from the British government uh, with uh, the security forces and then onto paramilitaries in Northern Ireland.
4: Well, yes, I mean we 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 have to ascertain how high up it went. But certainly we do know that uh, members of the security forces were involved in all these cases which are being investigated by um, Operation Denton. And um, But we don't know how high up it went. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's that's the difficult part to ascertain how high up these, uh, this collusion went. And we are hopeful that uh, um, if Mr. Boucher, John Boucher, is allowed to complete his investigation that... Uh, We'll, we'll learn more about that and uh, hopefully get much more of the truth than has emerged so far.
2: Okay, and uh, that the British government would have been aware in 1974 of the activities of uh, the Glenang gang and uh, the individuals quite possibly involved uh, in what, as you say, was uh, the biggest loss of life in one of the worst atrocities on this island in the history of uh, the Troubles. But you hear Brandon Lewis there say, Uh, 40 years ago and more in this case 48 years uh, ago is it possible to bring justice uh, as we discussed last week Margaret that's been the argument from uh, the Mm. British government uh, and you gave us your response to what was coming down the line last week. Have you managed to speak to the family since then and have uh, they uh, decided uh, that they're sceptical of what is being brought forward today in this bill?
4: I've spoken to some of the families, Uh, we have a small committee, I've spoken to to them and they are certainly very sceptical. I will speak hopefully to all of the families today or all of them who are able to attend, the majority of the families and the survivors. Uh, So we will be speaking about it today uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll uh, we'll be able... Well, we can't really reassure them that the, uh, the Operation Denton won't be stopped but... Uh, we can just say that we're, well. we can say is that we're very hopeful that it will be allowed to continue because it has advanced uh, now quite quite a lot because it's been ongoing for now about two and a half years so we're very much hoping that it will be allowed to uh, complete its work but of course we have other cases that do not come under the umbrella of Operation Denton and uh, we would have, um, we would have great concern about those cases as well.
2: OK, you'll be in a unique position today because, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Margaret, the Taoiseach will be attending and undoubtedly you'll have a chance to speak to Mihol Martin, the Taoiseach, as far as I understand it. And we listened to him when I spoke to you last week speaking in the doll about this, saying that he was looking for more detail, but he seems to be very concerned about what the British are proposing. What will you be saying to the Taoiseach?
4: well obviously it's it's mainly a day of remembrance and we have to uh, we have to respect that first of all and you know respect the office of the Taoiseach who's going to be there um to lay wreaths and and say a few words but certainly we will have a word if if we get the opportunity today uh, to uh, just ask him what he feels about it and if, if they have any further information. I, I doubt that the Irish government has a lot of information because this is just a, a unilateral uh, decision by the British government. You know, they've just, uh, they've just gone out on their own to do this, just like they're doing with the, with the protocol.
2: Yeah, it seems to be the case and it seems to be in breach of uh, the Stormont House uh, Agreement and it'll be interesting indeed to see what the reaction of uh, the British government or of the Irish government will be to this uh, bill that is uh, going uh, to uh, the British Parliament uh, today. Uh, Brandon Lewis will be bringing this forward. Uh, But uh, as you say, it's a, a day of reflection and you've been looking for justice for the forgotten and, as I said at the outset, Margaret, uh, you will never forget all of those who lost their lives and uh, were injured uh, as a result of that terrible day in 1974.
4: Yes, absolutely, yes, yes, that's true.
2: Okay, Margaret. Certainly
4: won't forget them.
2: Absolutely. Okay, Margaret, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Thanks, that's Margaret Irwin, coordinator for the Justice for the Forgotten Group.
0: Michael Michael Reed on LMFM.
2: Now, if you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard us talking about affordable housing, and it's now mm. called the
5: Affordable Housing Fund. There's 60 million being provided this year. The hope is that this year it will deliver 550 homes. The problem is, I looked at the regulations. O'No uh, Brain of Sinn Féin pointed me towards them, and there's a very complicated formula being used to, to work out who can of who can who can qualify for it. Mm. So the the eligibility criteria are very complicated, but they are it's designed in such a way that people on incomes of up to €100,000 will be eligible for this affordable housing fund which just seems crackers. Nice. Those people could, you know, should be able to afford even with a raging property market mm. they should be able to afford to go out there and buy themselves. It seems like an awful lot and, you know, is, is this telling us how crazy the market is, or is it just this scheme has been designed in such a way that it's just far too generous?
2: Right. That's Charlie Weston of the Irish Independent speaking to me yesterday. Let's uh, speak to Ono Brin, who we mentioned there. That's Sinn Fein's spokesperson on housing. A very good morning to you, Ono Brynn, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Charlie Weston asking yesterday if the scheme was too generous or if it was crackers. Uh, which do you believe it is
6: yeah and 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 i have to say even i'm perplexed by what the minister has done here um the the last affordable housing scheme that owen murky introduced had a a, an entry uh, limit of of seventy five thousand euros gross income for a couple Um, now many of us thought that that was a bit too low particularly where property prices were going in the large urban centers so we have been arguing for some time that there should be an upper income limit of $85,000 for singles or couples, but with a little bit of flexibility. So if somebody was over that limit but could demonstrate they had difficulty getting a mortgage for a comparable property, uh, they could access the scheme. What Daryl has done is introduced this incredibly complex formula that links the, the financial entry thresholds to the full market value of the property. Keep in mind these are affordable homes, so you buy them at a discount and the local authority has an equity stake in the property. So the income limits aren't linked to what you're paying for the property, but the full market price. And the way it works is, if the property, say, had a value of 300000 and you were buying it for two fifty, the income le- limit comes in at 73000 gross. But if, as is it going to be in the case in you know, O'Devony Gardens, where Dublin City Council is working in a joint venture with Bartra, the price, the full market price of the affordable home is 410000 which in, in and of itself is a, is a crazy proposition, the entry-level income limit will be 100000 gross. And the worry I think that some of the have is, is, look, house prices are spiraling out of control. Uh, And in some parts of Dublin, even a household on 100,000 euros would struggle. But in the main, the people who are really struggling to purchase homes at the minute will be on incomes of 50, 60, 70, 80,000. We can't have a situation where somebody on a very large salary uh, who is able to access a mortgage, say, for deposit and buy a home in the market is getting what is a very limited fund uh, pot of money through the affordable housing scheme. And if you compare it, say, with the so-called help-to-buy scheme, it's another Mm -hmm. controversial scheme uh, that many of us argue push-up prices. An independent Erocsis report showed that about 40% of people who had availed of that scheme didn't need it. They already had a sufficient deposit and mortgage to buy a home. They were simply able to either reduce their borrowing or or increase the the quality of the home that they were buying with that. Uh, And they were providing support for people locked out of the market. It should be going to those households. So I just don't understand why the Minister has done it in this way. I think uh, a cap of, of 85 grand gross with some flexibility for people over that who could demonstrate they were in difficulty would have been much more sensible.
2: Yeah, as you say, the way it's calculated is very complicated. Uh, is this an unintentional consequence, perhaps?
6: So, the difficulty, of course, is we have yet to have a briefing from the Minister or his officials on this. Um, the, the regulations, which were very delayed, you might remember the actual legislation underpinning the scheme was passed for the Rocks last year. Uh, funding was allocated $60 million, as Charlie said in your clip yesterday, for for uh, 2022. Um, uh, in fact, some homes in Cork were ready to go, but the regulations for eligibility were already published very quietly on the Parks website two weeks ago. So we've yet an opp- had an opportunity to kind of interrogate the, the, the minister on this. What I will say we do know is, is uh, a week ago, uh, I got access to the targets from now to 2026 for each local authority to be funded under this scheme. And they're incredibly low. I mean, if I just look at Loud and Mead, for example, and this is funding for the department to the local authority in the main to deliver uh, affordable homes on on public land at a discounted price. Uh, Loud is only going to get funding for an average of 45 of these affordable homes a year, every year out to uh, uh, 2026. And Mead, even less, they're only going to get funding for about 30 homes on average year out to 2026 that's nowhere close to enough and it's a similar picture across the rest of the country Port City is only going to get 76 of these a year mm. Dublin City you know population uh, uh, of its size is only going to get just over 400 like we need thousands thousands of affordable homes both to rent and buy delivered every single year and as Charlie Weston said government has only provided funding for up to 550 of these affordable purchase homes this year and some as in the case of Odeveny Gardens could be in the region of 410,000 that's not affordable The overwhelming majority of working people.
2: Well, that's (laughs) my next question preempted. What is uh, affordable? Because €410,000 is. Uh, by all accounts, a very expensive house, particularly when you move outside of Dublin. And even when you look in uh, the larger towns across Louth and Mead, I take it that most middle-income earners are living in houses worth between, let's say, 180000 hundred and eighty thousand and three hundred and fifty thousand. and 350000 When you get up to 400000 and beyond, you're getting into very big houses, not the kind of houses that you'd find in the estates anyway.
6: Yeah, and if you look at, for example, the most recent DAF.ie house price report, um, the, the average asking price for homes, so this is new and and, and kind of second-hand homes, in Laud, uh was 257000 in Mead it was 309000 And of course, the closer you get to Dublin, the more pressure is on the commuter belt counties because they're also dealing with the excess population from Dublin who can't uh, afford to buy the higher prices here in, in the city. So most of us, when we talk about affordability, you're talking about somewhere between 180 and 250,000 uh, euros. And in fact, there's a the housing co-op in North County Dublin at the moment, and they're building very, very good starter homes and apartments that are coming in at 250,000 or less. The only way you can do that is, is uh, when a local authority or a housing co-op or approved housing body is delivering uh, affordable purchase homes on public land. The build cost is the same. Doesn't Mm. matter whether you're building public or private; the cost the same amount to build, and as we know, those costs are rising. But the not-for-profits and the local authorities can treat the soft costs differently. They can treat the cost of the land; they don't have the high cost of finance; they don't have a 10 to 15 percent developer's margin, Um, and therefore they can dramatically reduce the all-in development costs and ultimately the sale price by treating those soft costs differently in the way that a private developer. Has to get paid the full amount for what they put into the development in the first place, uh, and we really think that if the government was serious about tackling uh, uh, affordable purchase uh, issues, it would be investing uh, uh, sufficiently for local authorities and housing bodies to deliver about four thousand affordable purchase homes a year. Keep in mind, last year the total number of private for purchase homes that came into the market, new homes, was only about 5,000. This year, it could be about six or six and a half. Mm. Um, And of course, most of those are at prices uh, many working people can't afford. So government has to get much more serious uh, about the scale of its own direct investment and crucially ensure that it is local authorities, approved housing bodies and co-ops, etc., delivering large volumes of these uh, homes. What's also concerning is is 13 counties aren't included in the current targets for affordable housing. And the Minister is saying that they can now apply, but we're not sure where they're going to go. The Minister is also saying that oh, but the Land Development Agency is going to deliver affordable homes and Part 5 might deliver affordable homes. But the Land Development Agency isn't active in most local authority areas, isn't going to be delivering a, any number of homes until 2024, five or six. Uh, and part five is unlikely to deliver affordable homes until after this government is out of office if mm-hmm. it lasts its full term. So for the life of me, I cannot understand why the government isn't doing the one thing it can control, dramatically increasing direct investment to local authorities and approved housing bodies. In good quality mixed income and mixed tenure estates, and selling at cost one, two, three bedroom houses, duplex and apartments for 180 to 250 thousand, depending on the location, size, uh, and size, type.
2: Okay, uh, and you're including Dublin in that, are you? Ab- absolutely, because really,
6: like for example, um, in, in, in Dublin at the moment, cool on the housing co-op mm. in North County Dublin, really great initiative with Dublin City Council, with uh, strong community support, have been delivering good quality two and three bed starter homes and they're now doing some apartments and they can bring them in at 250 or, or less. Oh. We've come up with some other innovations in terms of the financing where if the local authorities were doing them on a larger scale, you could bring that price down even further. We do have the challenge of construction sector inflation, six to 12, 6 to ten percent last year. Yep. People think it's going to hit 12% this year. So that is going to have to be factored in. But again, as I say, if the, the not-for-profits, the local authorities and the approved mm-hmm. housing bodies can treat land, finance um, uh, and margin completely differently. Yeah. There are ways to bring down the cost. So you're, you're making sure that the homes are at least below 250 in Dublin uh, and in and around 200,000 outside right. of Dublin.
2: Uh, I was reading Charlie's article in the Irish Independent yesterday uh, and uh, he spoke to a spokesperson for Darrell O'Brien, the minister, who said that the majority of homes in O'Devney Gardens will sell for between two hundred and and 300,000 euros. Uh, is it your contention that those houses, the houses in that category, uh, should be made uh, available to people under the Affordable Housing Scheme and that the houses that will go on sale for 410000 should be out of their league as such?
6: Well, the first thing is they are the Affordable Housing Fund houses. But what the spokesperson for the department didn't say is, let, let, let's take, for example, a three-bed. We expect the purchase price of that three-bed in Odeveni Gardens to be... 310,000. But there is also an equity stake that the local authority takes out of another 97,000. The reason for that is Bartra is saying that the full development price of that three bed is 410,000. So the affordable housing fund is used for the local authority to buy 97 grand's worth of the property. I would buy then, let's say I'm an eligible applicant, the rest of the property for 310. But I ultimately have to pay back the 97,000 as well, either if I sell the property or if I die and the property is passed on uh, uh, to my family, so the purchaser is ultimately paying the full market price for that property. It's just it's a it's complicated system for for reducing the, the cost.
7: Mm. But the, the government is giving this leg price, up.
6: But because absolutely, but mm. because the full market price is what determines the income eligibility, um, then it's it's open to people of a hundred thousand or more. The solution here, of course, is not to do these crazy uh, joint ventures with Bartra. There should be no affordable housing uh, uh, delivered in that way. It should all be local authorities and approved housing bodies on their own land with SME builders, mm. uh, and they would be able to build the properties from between two and 300,000, uh, and then uh, we would net out the cost of the land, the, the finance and developer's margin, so you could bring the price below 250. So Again, our proposition is different to theirs, but mm. keep in mind, there is always going to be a hidden equity charge, and in the original scheme that Owen Murphy had, the idea was the properties might cost 300 or 280,000. There would be an equity charge of about 40,000, and that would bring the purchase price below 250 or 240. And the equity charge wasn't very heavy. In the case of Devney Gardens under the Darrell O'Brien scheme, the equity debt that you have to pay back is 97,000 euros on a three-bed. That's almost like a second mortgage. Now, there's no interest on it. It sits as a charge on the property. Um, but it's just, it's a terrible way. Again, it's not like the regulations that the minister mm. uh, uh, issued. It's a very, very complicated and expensive way to deliver affordable homes. Mm. There's much better ways. We know what works. Let's give our local authorities and AHBs and housing co-ops the money and the land. Let them build them, sell that cost. And crucially, we need to ensure that those properties remain permanently affordable, not just the first purchaser, but to every subsequent purchaser after that, and that way, then we build up a growing stock of privately owned, privately traded, okay. permanently affordable houses. So,
2: when you say two hundred and fifty thousand should be the maximum, uh, are you making that proposal in the same way that this proposal is—that uh, if uh, you pay three hundred thousand for the house, uh, that it's subsidised by an additional ninety-seven thousand that would be owed? So, no. Uh, so, no. I,
6: I, our proposal is very different from the government's. Um, so, generally speaking, if you take, for example, that price of three hundred thousand, that would also include land values and site servicing. Um, our proposal is 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 very, very different to the government's in that uh, we wouldn't have a shared equity charge. What we would do is we would sell you the house. We would sell you the house at the full economic cost of the building of that house, which is you know two hundred and fifty thousand or so. What we wouldn't do is we wouldn't sell you the land, and therefore we're not charging you for the land or the site servicing. You get free use of that land uh, in perpetuity for yourself and for your family and and subsequent generations. But there's a couple of uh, conditions attached to the free land use. You can never let the property into the private rental sector. It's your family home for you and your children and their children. Um, And when you come to sell the home, and you can sell the home when you want, you don't get to sell it into the private market and make a huge windfall gain on land you never paid for. You sell it to another affordable purchaser at the future affordable purchase price index linked, let's say for inflation and home improvements. The great weakness of affordable housing schemes historically is they're only ever affordable for the first purchaser and then ultimately they sell them on and they become market homes. Imagine if we had 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 privately owned, privately traded but permanently affordable homes. That would mean we wouldn't just be guaranteeing affordability for buyers today but future generations will also have the ongoing prospect of being able to buy and own a home at a reasonable rate. So there will be no mm. equity charge uh, or, or repayment in ours. Okay. We just wouldn't charge for the land and the site servicing. It, it, it's,
2: but, it, it's, it, it's pretty complicated, but I, I think uh, the, the simple way for first-time buyers listening to us uh, to understand it is uh, that uh, under this scheme, they'll be competing with people who are earning €100,000 for houses that are costing €410,000. Uh, and I take it that's why you'll be raising it uh, in uh, the doll today in the coming days.
6: Uh, Absolutely. And and we we also have a piece of legislation we're introducing today, which is to clamp down on unregulated short term lettings. Because we also have a problem which is rents are going up. Far, far uh, uh, too many properties are illegally operating in the short term letting market rather than long term rental. uh, And we have legislation to tackle that crisis uh, uh, today as well.
2: All right. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. That's Ono Bryan, Sinn Fein's spokesperson on housing. Michael
0: Michael Reid on on LMFM.
2: Now, you've been listening to Sinn Féin councillor Kevin Meenan on LMFM's news uh, this morning, talking about people being intimidated by aggressive begging. Kevin is on uh, the line with us, and a very good morning to you, Kevin, uh, and thanks uh, indeed for joining us. Uh, We thought you might just uh, expand on on that uh, a little bit, because this is illegal, isn't it, as it stands?
5: Yes, thanks, Michael, for having me on. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's illegal. Uh, I have no real issue with the passive begging, I'm not I'm not concerned with that myself. It's just the amount of people who complain to myself or make complaints into our, our office in town about whenever they stop to get out of their car, somebody the nearly the on top of them looking for money. Uh, I've witnessed it myself as well. It's on various parts of the dock in terms of, say, in, in St. Patrick's Church and uh, some of the car parks as well.
2: Alright, do you and, think some uh, of these people are professional beggars?
5: Well, they do it for a living. I wouldn't say you're, there are some cases. I wouldn't class them as professional, but they certainly they certainly know what they're at. And, and, and well, they, they, as I say, they, they pick and choose in terms of who they go up to as well. I would imagine. Uh, and and what we would get is to say people coming mm-hmm. to us, particularly women who would come in and say they felt very intimidated getting out of the car. They might be getting trying to get kids out of the car at the same time, and then you somebody standing around them. And sometimes they're in pairs as well. Sometimes it's a male and female. Uh, and there's probably, I would guess, maybe seven or eight different people at this, uh, and I would, I would imagine the guards are well aware who mm. it is as well, and, and that's why I asked them to, to maybe start actually marking their cards.
2: And, All right, maybe, may, maybe you're them. right. Professional beggars is probably the wrong way of uh, describing some of uh, these people who do it for a living, because quite often they're put to work uh, by professional uh, begging organisers.
5: Yeah, well, say so the, the, uh, so the ones, I say the ones I would. No our local ones so mm. it would be people who would be uh, who more more nuisance than anything else I would say, Michael, so they're just and and they're stopping people sometimes freely, they're stopping one after another as they're coming down through the street and they're just standing there. There's been reports of them standing outside funerals uh, as well. And uh, I haven't witnessed that but that has been mentioned to ourselves on a few occasions. Anywhere where there's a crowd, you you'll you'll see them. So, uh, so they, I, I think it's time to put a stop to it now as well. Yeah. Say people especially with women, it's intimidating when, when particularly older women are coming along there and, and, and in some cases would hand over money. So it's, it's obviously working from their point of view. So they are getting some money from it, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. Mm. So that, that's another issue too. But people probably don't feel the, the strength to say no, Joe, and feel intimidated to, to hand over money.
2: Yeah, or guilted into it, uh, which... Yeah. I mean, you can understand why people do. People are very generous uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but other people will stop giving altogether uh, to people uh, who are homeless or on the street and that sort of, of thing. And uh, that's yeah, a, a decision that everybody has to make for themselves.
5: It's an important point because I, I would give, I would give to people myself often do, and I'd order people to do the same, but not too aggressive. Beggars. Joe you'd see people there who are, who are in some cases nearly landmarks in the, in the town because they're, they are they are on the particular spot all the time. And uh, people that know them some some are local so and they don 't cause any offense they don't uh, they don 't intimidate people they don 't uh, uh badger them from for money you know? and, and and people will will pass over money to them and i 've often done that myself but it's it 's aggressive aggressiveness uh, intimidatory sort of stature in really around getting very close into people that that has to stop you know? and i 'm sure the girls are well aware who who these people are.
2: Mm, yeah, well that's quite often the case uh, but it doesn't mean that something will happen about it.
5: Well I hope, I'm hope i hoping it will and I'll be asking for, for an update uh, fairly quickly. I think we've been meeting with the guards next week so I'll be asking has there been really any work done on that, Have they identify the people who I, I could probably tell them off, off air who they are Joe? and they and will be. But uh, as I say I'll be looking for a report and I'd like to see it happening and I think more guards on the street would be some type of uh, Encouragement to people to, particularly around certain points where we're in around a credit union on a Friday or or places like that, or you know, in around post offices as well. Uh, and I say, so even when, when you have people coming into somewhere now, you're going to have a lot more people on the street, a lot more people sitting at the square, a lot more people outside dining. And, and you don't want that to be ruined by people coming along.
2: Mm. Yeah, well, I must say I would never uh, give anything to somebody who's begging aggressively, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I I would otherwise, uh, but that's a, a personal decision. I can understand why people won't. Uh, mine, by the way, uh, was influenced by Peter McVerry, who on this programme said, well, yeah, look, you know, uh, maybe they'll go and spend the money if you give them some money on drinking drugs. Uh, but they're going to get the drink and drugs anyway, so if you don't give it to them, they're going to have to get it somewhere else, uh, and then think about that and where they're going to get it. Uh, And I suppose that uh, guided my way of thinking on it, but when it comes to aggressive begging, uh, there's a a lot of reasons, uh, I I think, for not doing it, and one of them is the one that I I mentioned earlier on, that quite often the people who are doing it are part of organised gangs, uh, but you don't think that's the case in in Dundalk at the moment?
5: No, In in the ones I've flagged up, I don't think Mm. that is the case, but I I am aware of the ones that you're talking about, and they are... um, or you can see I would have seen them in the past where they would be dropped off in cars off side streets and then make their way up to the main street and then they would uh they would earn their days trade and back again and be picked up at a certain point in the evening time. Mm. I have witnessed that myself. That that has been going on for a long time. Mm. And but but more or less the people who have complained to ourselves or people in, in regards to certain individuals who I would know are just walking through the street, sometimes drinking and uh just basically chance in their arm and, mm. and going up to people and picking the, the most vulnerable of them all.
2: And you, you raised this at the Joint Policing Committee. Uh, did the superintendent uh, want to hear the names or anything like that? Did you give any more information no, privately? I, hmm.
5: I think the indicated, I I got the indication from, or may may have read it wrong, that they're aware of probably who I'm talking about okay. and they say they, they, they would look at that. But but I, I certainly I i am due to talk to to uh, Charlie Armstrong myself the superintendent and uh, uh, I'm due to talk to him probably the next few days so I, I would be keen to mention that again it's just a follow up from the stuff I had raised at the, the JPC
2: Okay well if it continues maybe people would let you know let the Garda station know or let us know here in the radio station if uh, they prefer but thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning that's Sinn Féin, okay. Féin okay. Councillor in Louth Kevin Meenan Michael, Michael Reed,
0: Reed on, on LMFM
2: Well, as you know, there's been a lot of concern about the influence that a Catholic ethos amongst members of the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group will have on the running of the new National Maternity Hospital.
7: St. Vincent's Healthcare Group is a secular organisation. The hospital has no religious ethos. Services have been and will continue to be delivered in accordance with best international medical practice compliant with the laws of Ireland and the people of all faiths and none. There are multiple protections in place to ensure no religious authority or control can be exerted. Our founding values are dignity, compassion, justice, quality and advocacy, values found in many institutions across the world and which cannot be interpreted as any attempt to directly or indirectly impose a Catholic
2: ethos. That's James Menton, who's uh, the chair of the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group, uh, speaking at a much-anticipated meeting of the Rocktus Health Committee yesterday. Let's speak uh, to Gavin Riley now. Gavin is political correspondent for Virgin Media News and also a columnist, as I'm sure you know for the Meath Chronicle. Good morning to you, Gavin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Well, was there much point uh, to the Health Committee meeting yesterday? given that the three leaders agreed to relocate the new hospital on uh, the grounds of the St. Vincent's campus and the Cabinet is uh, undoubtedly going to sign off on exactly that this morning.
6: Um, There might have been some points to yesterday's one in particular, because uh, although you could question the value of of the overall delay, if the government wasn't really minded to do or or change anything, basically, sort of arguing that it needed two weeks for people to catch up with the government thinking almost, if you want to think of it that way. Um, Yesterday's hearing might have been slightly more useful, though, because it was the first time that we've really managed to see the whites of the eyes of those from the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group. They are... The landlords uh, at the the site in which the new hospital will be built, their company will be the parent company of the New National Maternity Hospital. They are the ones who, until recent times, were directly owned by the Sisters of Charity, and therefore there might have been questions around their ethos. But by and large, they've been keeping a fairly low profile. They put out the occasional press release, but they don't generally engage in any kind of broadcast interviews. They're not generally seen in public. They certainly don't call press conferences. So up to a certain point, until yesterday, it's always been Hamlet without the Prince, and, and people were arguing about whether there was some sort of religious code that was still binding on that company or, or what the company's true motives were. And members of the Rockers who might have been slightly more cynical or dreadful about the whole thing hadn't ever seen or met face-to-face with the people who were on the other side of that equation. So maybe at least yesterday, the, the intention was for seeing the wipes of the eyes to, to maybe uh, to, to win over some of the doubters or to explain that there wasn't some sort of covert uh, religious plan to have influence by stealth, uh, as mm. they would see it. Whether it was successful or not, I'm not totally sure, but at least it was an opportunity for them to finally meet face-to-face and to thrash out some of those concerns in the flesh.
2: Okay, and we heard very clearly in the opening statement from uh, the chairman uh, that they consider themselves uh, to be a, a secular organisation. Uh, but the members of the committee still had many questions uh, to ask about uh, the Catholic ethos.
6: Yeah, well, they're asking about you know religious iconography that's still shown throughout the campus and that there are still lots of, of crucifixes and oratories and, and uh, masses in, in hospital chapels and all the likes as well. And, and they said that it was something of a work in progress. They did actually say that a lot of the religious iconography was going to be taken down off the walls in the next three to six months, so where you currently might walk in and there might be a small uh, shrine to our lady or some other, uh, you know, religious signs or even just a crucifix on the wall, they're all going to be gone. But some people basically just think it is too good to be true that the the previous shareholders who were obviously the the religious sisters of charity uh, would have agreed to set up a completely independent and completely secular charity, completely outside of their own control and then irrevocably hand over control of the entire St. Vincent's empire, because it's obviously a very large and very lucrative business. And a lot of uh, members of the, of the committee, w- whether you call this you know well-grounded or just overtly cynical, uh, whatever way you look at it, they just found it too good to be true that the nuns would have handed over control of the whole thing to a new secular company, and to let it go and not have any control forevermore. Uh, and part of that that concern is that it is very difficult to counter, because even if you do have St. Vincent in front of them, I mean, firstly, mm. there is still question marks around the name. If you were setting up a brand new secular entity, would you still put the name of a saint in, in the title? That's maybe secularism being in the eye of the beholder. Um, but a lot of the proof around whether there truly is a secular um, ethos or a secular outlook, or, or whether there would be any religious code binding on the company, um, they would they would be asking basically for the company to turn over the existence of some correspondence with the Vatican some of which may not actually exist, because you're basically getting to the point where you are asking them to to, to sign over or to reveal to the public all of the terms and conditions that may have been attached by the Vatican to the control of the land. There is some fairly bare-bones paperwork that has been published by the Holy See about all of that, Um, but people won't be happy until they see the full black and white of it. And of course, that depends on whether that paperwork actually exists or not, and it is very difficult for people to turn over paperwork that proves the existence of a secular ethos if that paperwork never actually existed in the first place. And that means that really it comes Mm. down to a a question of trust and it has been described in some quarters as something of a culture war and and there might be some truth to that because there are some people who just will never be convinced of secularism until they get to see it in the flesh.
2: There are a number of concerns uh, about the location that have nothing to do with religion and maybe we'll talk uh, about those in, in a minute but if you were to sum up the concerns about religious influences on services that are and are not provided in the new maternity hospital uh, you could do it in two words, couldn't you? Clinically appropriate.
6: Yeah, and and this really has been the crux of everything, and it is it has at least been been useful for the last two weeks that the debate around all of this and the government giving time for these things to be trashed out, it has ultimately crystallised on that phrase, clinically appropriate, because every time in any of the legal documents that the uh, the hospital or the landlord commits to offering all legally permissible services, it is always with the the prefix of clinically appropriate and legally permissible. And in many people's eyes, that opens the door because you, you would certainly, you'd never tell tell a hospital that it can do something which is clinically inappropriate. So some people then see that as a Trojan horse through which you can introduce some other test where something, even if it's legally possible, uh, might be withheld by the doctors because they don't believe that it's in the best interest of the patient or patients, as as you might see it, because you could consider the the, the child in utero to be a patient in that regard as well. And that really has has been where it's all crystallised. And we did think that there was going to be some kind of happy accord last Friday when there was a piece in the Irish Times about there being some kind of legal codicil which is basically some kind of appendix or attachment Mm. or even basically a A a post-it note stuck to the A
2: definition of of what clinically appropriate means.
6: Yeah, so you wouldn't necessarily have to amend or revisit the documents that are already there. You would just have some supplements to them to explain what is intended by that and that it wasn't supposed to introduce uh, an ethical test And Stephen Donnelly has seemed fairly open-minded to all of that, but the problem being that um, I was at a media event with Micheal Martin on Friday morning just after that story was published, and I spoke to him and said, well, is there going to be some sort of legal codicil or, or is there the prospect of some kind of attachment to the contract explaining what that means? And he basically brushed off the whole thing by saying that, well, actually, no, he do, he doesn't think that the statement is open to interpretation, and therefore doesn't see the need to clarify it. So mm. it all seems to come down to the views of the T-shirt and perhaps to a lesser extent Stephen Donnelly, who, who don't think that the the phrase is any way ambiguous, and therefore don't see the need to change it. Now, it is worth just stating, just before we move on, that all of the parties involved in this, this transaction or this, this contract, so the... The HSE, the government, the the outgoing uh, maternity hospital in Hollister Street, um, everyone who's involved in the new maternity hospital, and indeed St. Midsons themselves, they all have the same understanding of what clinically appropriate means. They say Mm. that it is literally just a case of stuff that you would do in a maternity hospital and not have this becoming a backdoor to offering uh, other non-maternity services. Mm. But you, you
2: you, you don't offer dermatology normally in a maternity hospital?
6: Well, this is, well, and strictly speaking, they are not offering dermatology in the new maternity hospital either, but the state is funding the building of a new one. And and this is where you get really into the weeds of it, but the long and the short of it is that uh, the, the construction of the new hospital on the Vincent site would result in the partial destruction of some of the facilities that are already there. So what the state is committed to doing is to building replacements for them which means that the state would be funding a new dermatology wing for the existing Vincents. It's not; it's part of the structure but it's not part of the hospital which is, a, if you'll pardon me a fortunate pun, mm. it's a slightly Jesuitical dispute when you're talking about what is religious and what isn't um, but, but th- those are the, the, the phrases that we're in. But anyway, long story short, mm. all, all, all parties to the current deal Do have the same understanding of what clinically appropriate means. So then the concern is, well, could someone else further down the line in a few years or a few decades, could they inject uh, some ambiguity into that? And then you get into the question of, should you be making legal changes to a document based on an interpretation that nobody has right now? Well, that's the real concern, isn't it? Because
2: if it is ambiguous, it it can be interpreted differently. Uh, How does St. Vincent's Healthcare Group interpret it?
6: Uh, exactly the same way as the state does, and this this again was asked of them yesterday. That they said that you know this was a partnership between the Saint Vincent's Group and the state in trying to produce this new facility to relocate all the structures of Hollow Street and to bring them over to the site. But that there was a certain element of good faith being involved, mm. and that they they were doing this to to fund a new maternity hospital. They didn't want it to become suddenly some other hospital that might. For example, something that might offer services that compete with the St. Vincent's private hospital on the same campus. They didn't want there to be competition there. So they said you can have the size and you can have this sort Mm -hmm. of peppercorn rent for a tenner a year as long as you keep it as a maternity hospital and not anything else. But they see clinically appropriate through that lens. They say anything which would usually be attached to a maternity hospital is fair game. And that's all we mean by clinically
2: appropriate. But of course, it's in the eye of the beholder. Sorry, Gavin. Uh, there, there, there was another int- interesting issue that was brought up yesterday by Roisin Shortall uh, because the St. Vincent's healthcare group are up to their eyes in, in debt, it, it would yeah. seem. Uh, and then there's the question of ownership. The state builds the hospital uh, on Vincent's land. Who owns the hospital? Uh, and if, if to pay off their debts, can the group turn around and suddenly decide... Uh, to uh, push uh, that tenner a year up to nearly a million a year, or can the banks repossess the hospital? Well, this
6: this was a this is a very kind of a slippery area. And what emerged yesterday is that uh, Vincent's will have the power. Part part of the reason why they are not handing over the plot of land upon which the the hospital will reside. Well, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, that they reckon just from an estate management perspective, when it's a big campus and it has a lot of other clients that are there, and and there's other. HSE units like health check for example or breast check that are are all also based on the campus, that they would say that it would overcomplicate things if an isolated parcel of land within that whole complex wasn't owned by them, if it was owned by somebody else, because then shared services and utilities and even rights of way and access would all be complicated. And they just think it's easier for everyone if if the whole plot is owned by the same people. But yes, there is a commercial basis behind it as well, and that is the fact that there is a mortgage on the entire plot of land uh, which... Vincents took out in order to fund the development of the private hospital. And that that ironically means that a previous public investment in that facility has been mortgaged by Vincents for their private betterment. They're using the public funding for some commercial gain. But we are where we are now, and there is still a mortgage on that land. Mm -hmm. And, And Vincents then, for that reason, aren't in a position to consider handing it over. But they did say that, yes, in future, they would be in a position to remortgage the land but they say that the terms of the lease make it fairly clear that Vincent's won't have any operational running in the in the new hospital that's on it, and therefore the hospital itself could not be mortgaged. So what it could mean is that the state is paying a tenner a year right now in peppercorn rent, but if Vincent as a broader group found itself in some financial concern a little bit later in life, that someone else could end up repossessing the site and that therefore that landlord could decide, well, the tenor a year is out the window, I'm going to charge commercial rents now, and that's where things are going to come unstuck. Now, Vincent did also say yesterday, and they were at pains to point this out, that the the group is in, as they say, rude financial health, and there is no reason to foresee that ever happening. But it does remain a point in principle, and this is why these committee meetings can be uh, very tricky sometimes for the government, because if you intend for them to be a forum for everything to be put to bed, they're also a forum for, for new concerns to be raised. And the idea that the land could be mortgaged and ultimately repossessed by somebody else, some other partner further down the line, um, is something which then could could introduce even more grist to the mill for people to say that it shouldn't go ahead.
2: Okay, so what uh, about government? Will there be any dissenting voices and will there be any dissenting voices from the back benches?
6: Uh, no dissenting voices from Cabinet and I can tell you that much for certain because we fully expect that the, the government is already putting plans in place for a press conference this morning to announce their signature to this whole deal. So I don't think that they would do that if they were planning to entertain any last-minute doubts of Cabinet, and certainly it seems that all parties now are happy. Uh, The backbenches will be interesting because we did have Nasa Harrigan, the Green Party backbencher for Dublin Central last night, uh, saying it should be delayed, not because of the religious concerns or anything else, but because the government, the Department of Public Expenditure, which holds first strings, hasn't actually signed off on the business case for all of this. They're not convinced that the whole thing is value for money, and she is not too wild about the idea of pre-committing a billion euro to the hospital, when in fact a billion euro might not be necessary to provide all of those services. So um, she she is very openly holding herself out. and She says that the Sinn Féin motion tonight about public ownership um, is very hospitable and very attractive wording. So um, it would be a, a huge political achievement if the government got through all of this and took some flack publicly, but didn't lose any bodies from within. And, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if This was the second time that NASA Harrigan voted against the government, and that was the end of her involvement
2: with it. Okay, well, it's going to be a long day, and thank you indeed uh, for setting the scene for us. That's Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News. Gavin is also a columnist with the Meath Chronicle.
0: Michael Michael Reid on
2: LMFM. Well, you'll remember a couple of years ago, Boris Johnson had this to say about the Northern Ireland Protocol. The deal we've done with the EU is a brilliant deal. That's uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, A couple of years ago, yesterday, he was speaking to Paul McNamara of Channel 4. Less than two years in, this deal, this protocol,
1: has caused the collapse of the Northern Ireland Assembly, economic hardship for firms in Northern Ireland, and now needs a major revision. Prime Minister, you must be furious with whoever signed up to a deal this bad. Look, uh, I'll be absolutely frank with you. My my priority is, number one, get the, the government of Northern Ireland up and running. Uh, and the problem that we've got at the moment is that uh, we've got one part of the community in Northern Ireland, one of the major traditions in Northern Ireland, uh, the unionist community that, that doesn't like uh, the protocol. Actually, of the five parties that I've just talked to, not a single one uh, likes the protocol as it, as it currently operates. Now, yes, uh, I agreed it, but I agreed it on the basis that it protected the Good Friday Agreement, it protected the East-West strand of the Good Friday Agreement. It explicitly, on the face of it, uh, says that uh, we've got to protect the UK internal market. And that was the reason I I went for it, because it seemed to me like those were things that our friends in the EU uh, would mean sincerely. But you can't be surprised by any of the bits that you don't like at the moment. Pretty much all of them were in the impact assessment papers. I've got them here, I've read them. Did you read them? Uh, Of course, but uh, I hoped... So have you just ignored them then? No, I hoped and believed that our friends would not uh, necessarily want to uh, apply uh, the protocol in quite the way that they have. And everybody knows the barriers that have been produced, the distortions, the diversions of trade. 200 UK companies no longer, uh, uh, GB companies no longer exporting Uh, to Northern Ireland, a great deal of faff and uh, and botheration for for individuals and for for companies, adding to costs, adding to the cost of living uh, right now. That's
2: Boris Johnson speaking to Paul McNamara of Channel 4 News explaining he didn't understand what he he was agreeing to or at least if he did he didn't think that the other side would expect that he would uphold the deal uh, and that's why he's changing it uh, he arrived uh, and was met by hundreds of protesters uh, at Hillsborough yesterday Amongst those uh, protesting uh, was a customs officer, another person dressed as Boris Johnson, and protesters from uh, the Border Communities Against Brexit. Let's uh, speak now uh, to Tom Murray, spokesperson for Border Communities Against Brexit. A uh, very good morning to you, Tom. Thanks for joining us all on the programme this morning. Uh, it looks as though Liz Druss is going to uh, announce, announce the intention to bring forward legislation which will change the protocol protocol without uh, agreement to, to take this unilateral action. What do you think the consequences of that will be?
7: Well, I think even the way that you've described it there is perfect in that it's not even clear exactly what Liz Truss is going to do. A week ago, two weeks ago, we had Boris Johnson saying they need to get rid of the protocol, and then within the last couple of days he said, let's change the pits that he doesn't like, that aren't workable, and... Um, Go back to what he said in your first part of the interview, that it was a brilliant deal, which, in fact, it really is. We don't know exactly what Liz Truss is going to bring today. We wait to see, but she intends to bring legislation which would empower the British government to make unilateral changes to the protocol. The level and severity which she goes to, obviously, will dictate a European response, and the level and severity which she goes to may or may not placate the DUP enough to go into the assembly in the north. We don't know. She doesn't seem to be at this point saying they're going to tear up the protocol, which is what one of the previous demands was. It seems that she's going to make some amendments to the protocol to protect the, as they call it, the east-west or as the leader of the UUP called it lately, a green corridor of supply into the north. What remains to be seen is how much there is a risk of that to the European single market which will always be protected and which the EU has always maintained from day one without changing their position at any point. They've been extremely consistent that they must protect the EU single market. The protocol came about in being in a way which, if worked properly, would make the north of Ireland the envy of many parts of Mm. other parts of Britain and that it gives exposure to the European single market and to the British market. Yes, there may be some additional paperwork, but there's still exposure to extremely large markets. And I would argue that parts of Scotland and Wales and parts of England would dearly love to have the protocol and still have access to the European market, unfettered access to the European market.
2: The best of both worlds uh, as such. It is
7: the best of both worlds situation. And I accept there's a political sensitivity around, uh, which has been created. And I'm not sure it's as, as big as is, as is said, to be honest with you, as in that it, 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 it departs the north of Ireland from other parts of Britain. Because when we speak to business people in the North of all persuasions, they all say to us that the protocol is workable, the protocol gives them a chance to expand their business. The economy of the North is growing faster than any part of Britain, Mm. for example. So the protocol, whilst it's not perfect, whilst there might be some elements of it that are a bit cumbersome, it delivers what it was set out to deliver. And it's very disingenuous of Boris Johnson at this stage to say he doesn't understand what he signed up to or that he didn't expect that his partners in the treaty would expect the treaty to be delivered in the manner in which it's laid out explicitly in the treaty.
2: The political objection, though, is a question of national identity, isn't it, from the Unionists' uh, perspective? And if what the British does now is change parts of the treaty, as you say, it may not be uh, enough for them because they want it ripped up. But even if it it is uh, enough for them uh, and the treaty is changed unilaterally without without, uh, the... Uh, agreement of the European Union and the consequences that may have. Uh, Well, you've another problem, don't you? I mean, you can't expect Sinn Féin or others to accept this change, uh, and that would leave government uh, in Northern Ireland uh, in this ongoing state of stalemate.
7: It it would, and Just to be clear, neither Sinn Féin, nor the DUP, nor the UUP, nor the SDLP can actually change the protocol or affect it in any way, shape, or form. It's an agreement specifically between the London government and the EU parliament. And for Britain to take a unilateral action which may placate the concerns of unionism risks the entire withdrawal agreement, risks the part of the Good Friday Agreement which which the protocol set out to guarantee that there'd be no border back on the island of Ireland, and in risking the entire withdrawal agreement probably has a far greater impact on the economy of both Britain and Ireland than the protocol has. The protocol has potential benefits for everybody in the North of Ireland and whilst there are some political sensitivities we have unionist businessmen talking to us saying and unionist farmers saying that they could not be without being recognised as Irish beef and Irish milk and whilst they may not feel comfortable saying it publicly, all of them, they're certainly saying to it privately that the protocol benefits them. Mm. So we have to be very careful about how big an identity problem this mm. is, and is it being used as a mask by the DUP for another reality in which that they don't want to be the junior first minister or the deputy first minister to a nationalist first minister? And if that is the real argument they have, then let's have that argument and let's be honest about the politics, and let's be honest about what the difficulty is.
2: But we're back six years, isn't it, or or however long it is since Brexit. uh, We
7: we actually are back at the mm -hmm. very, very beginning in the risk that Britain may actually do something which can only be described as stupid now if they do something that tears up the protocol and tears up the withdrawal agreement and ends up with customs checks back on the island mm. of Ireland. That well, it would could
2: be, be catastrophic. It uh, would be
7: entirely unacceptable to everybody mm. in the island of Ireland. Simon Coveney mm. was extremely strong about that yesterday. Everybody in the Irish government has been strong about that. It is actually probably one of the few things that unites every party in Ireland, mm. in the state, is their is opposition to border checks on the island of Ireland and anything that damages the Good Friday Agreement.
2: And you talk about the political parties in Northern Ireland not having it in their gift to renegotiate the protocol. The Irish government doesn't have it in its gift to do that. Uh, the Irish government can, along with uh, the other 26 members of the European Union, 27 countries, together renegotiate with the British government if they do that successfully. But if they do not do that successfully... What is the upshot of that? Is it the return of a hard border on this island?
7: Well, it may possibly be, yes. And you're 100% correct. The Irish government has no power to renegate the protocol, but the Irish government isn't trying to. The Irish government is saying that along with our European partners, we stick by the original agreement, an internationally signed agreement, and let's implement the agreement, which hasn't even yet been implemented in full, which is another point of contest. Mm. But absolutely, the risk is that if the protocol is rejected, if the protocol is torn up, that there will be a necessary step to establish a hard border on Ireland because the EU will have to protect the EU single market. So again, going back to the start of the conversation, what's important is let's see exactly what the changes are that Liz Truss attempts to make, what is the magnitude of them, what's the severity and what are the implications, notwithstanding the fact that no matter what she does today could take up to a year to implement anyway, because whilst it may get through the House of Commons, relatively quickly, and I don't think it'll be that quick because they've yet to debate the Queen's speech, according to the Ministers for State this morning, Um, then it won't get through the House of Lords just as rapidly as Boris Johnson would like. So no matter what Liz Truss does today, it still could be 12 months before there's an impact on it. If she brings in legislation today, though, that unilaterally damages the protocol, even if it takes 12 months to implement, there has to be a response from Europe, and the risk of that is a border in Ireland which is unacceptable. To everybody on this island, it flies in the face of the Good Friday Agreement, which is a far bigger prize than the protocol.
2: Absolutely. Tom, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. OK, Thanks thank very you. very much. Thanks. That's Tom Murray, spokesperson for Border Communities Against Brexit. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. If you were listening to us last week, uh, you may have heard uh, David Hall of uh, the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation suggest that you fix your mortgage, because rates are going to go up, it seems, from July by 0.25%, and uh, there probably will be quarterly increases after that for some time to come. He also suggested that uh, you might get the advice of Paul Merriman, CEO of Ask Paul and Pax Financial, to do that. Paul Merriman is on the line with us, and a very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I I know this is something that uh, people are concerned about, because you've been surveying people about uh, the cost of living and 83% of the people that you've spoke about are concerned about the future, probably concerned about getting uh, from day to day at the moment but I think most of us are expecting that it's going to get worse in time to come.
6: Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, 83% of people in the survey are worried about money, uh, which, is, which is which is a very very high percentage of people. Now, obviously, they're reading the news, uh, they're reading papers, rather listen to the news, and they're they're seeing the cost of living around them go up. So whether well, it's their energy bill, the cost of petrol at the pump, and um, and they're they're getting concerned, they're getting worried. But I think as David Hall had mentioned previously, um the reason for this is, is the inflation figures. So inflation is up around 7% at the moment um, and if inflation doesn't come down <clears throat> if it doesn't naturally come down next year to 2023 uh, the only thing the European Central Bank can do is raise interest rates even higher so we we're always expecting maybe a 025 rate increase by the end of this year. It looks like that's going to now happen in July, um, and followed by maybe one or two other rate increases by the end of the year. So I think interest rates in the ECB are going to go about 1, 1.5% by the end of next year, having massive impacts for all those tracker mortgage holders, people that are on fixed rates or coming off fixed rates soon, uh, and also very bright holders. Um, so I think for the consumer and uh, if the inflation doesn't come down i mean they're going to be less paying for a higher cost of goods and services as in petrol diesel and uh, electricity a cup of coffee bread whatever it is uh, and then also higher mortgage costs so i do think it's a time for people to start maybe planning their finances a little bit better now don't wait for this to happen next year sorry it's already yeah. started but if it does get out of hand i think this is what dave is trying to talk about as well if it does get out of hand and what i mean by out of hand is that if the ecb uses inflation it uses interest rates the curb inflation we are really, really, really going to be in a spot of butter in this country. Well,
2: I think the headline in the Irish Examiner a couple of weeks ago would spell out what getting out of hand is and that people would be expected to come up with €300 extra in mortgage repayments a month. And your survey has already found that one in four are are concerned at meeting their payments as it stands.
6: Yes, one or four are concerned about making their payments. And that's a payment on the rent and the mortgage, you know. Um, so that that's quite alarming because they uh, we... You know, people are not, obviously a lot of high renters in this country now as well compared to what it would have been in the last financial crisis because the last financial crisis we had in 2007, 2008 a lot of homeowners obviously uh, now everything has been built and I'm sorry everything, practically everything built in Dublin anyway is built to rent and uh, you've seen that around the country as well in some of the yeah. major cities so if people are struggling to meet their rent repayments uh, and also meet their mortgage repayments uh, I, I do think we're on a kind of knife edge here I do think that it can go I do think that inflation might naturally come down I mean it might naturally come down because because you could see the in Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine rather probably could pull back slightly. Uh, you might see the likes of um, the oil prices come back down. Uh, you might see supply of oil increase. Um, and you might just see, I mean, the, the big thing here, obviously, is in China as well, they're kind of getting how many with coronavirus and coronavirus. They're, they're stopping the supply of goods coming out of there. So if it doesn't settle down naturally in 12 months, I, I think it will. If it does, we're okay. Uh, but we're still going to have some level of increase in the mortgage interest rates. Uh, but overall, and the and, and you mentioned the survey with that, uh, over 50, 50% of the people rather said that they were going to curb their socialising habits so they're going to cut back on going out and mm. cut back on spending and uh, as a society coming out of COVID-19 that's not great to hear it again so quickly uh, so it's going to be in a really tough two years obviously in 2020s uh, and now baseball could be coming our way and the hospitality sector is only getting back on its feet as well so if inflation keeps going the way it goes and the ECB increases in interest rates that means that no money be spent in the economy and that will force a, a, a pretty bad recession in my opinion and um, mm. could be could be looking around the corner if it's not sorted so i think it's, it's 12 months to be keeping your eye on inflation keeping an eye on what's happening but god as david god, as D- David said last week you need to fix your mortgage because we can pretty much guarantee you're going to see rate increases this year and next year mm. uh, but you're going to, to see your, to if, you, if,
2: if you if you fix today of course you're going to see your repayments that increase overnight
6: yeah, you will. So, it, well, it depends. So, I mean, there's a really good rate out there with Finance Ireland at two point eight odd percent or two point eight five percent for twenty five years. Uh, there are a lot of clients that come to us would have three point two, three point five. So some of them be actually bringing down the repayments. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. some clients might have two point two or two point three. Uh, but you know. At 2.8, we know it's going to be probably at least 1%, not 1.5% higher next year. So you're paying a little bit higher now, mm. but it means you're never going to get it. If you take that rate for 25 years, you have 25 years left your mortgage. You're never going to hear from the bank again. Mm. And the other thing people have to realize is that the European Central Bank and the guys that run this European Central Bank and the council of that bank, uh, the council of the ECB, they're just human. They're trying their best <laughs> to, to, to get mm-hmm. this right, but they could also get it wrong. But you, are a consumer, has the practicality to maybe take that out of their hands and say, I'm gonna fix here for twenty five years yeah. I don't trust anybody, I'm just gonna look after my own house. Because you think about it, people go to work and they make a living and they come home, but all these other factors that they can't control. Are going to make a massive impact in their financial future. So I just think, as I said to my financial planner, I talk talking the clients, trying to protect your future and trying to protect your own house mm. is more important and I'm not waiting for these guys to make decisions. And I think at 2.8%, or like that rate I spoke to the when they didn't for five, I think that's a really good option for people today to fix just for the peace of mind alone.
2: How bad, uh, how, how, how bad could it get? Because uh, I think it there's... could go to 6 or 8% interest rates, mortgage interest wow, rates, right. easily mm-hmm. in the next two, three years. Yeah. If
6: inflation doesn't come down because the only way the ECB can bring down inflation is to increase mortgage. It's the only thing they have
2: in the yeah. toolbox. Well, well, that would cripple mortgage. a lot of people, wouldn't
6: it? It will cripple the whole economy. And it would mean. mean like, like, to give you an example, if you're looking at costs, you have a 400,000 mortgage and it's over 25 years. Yeah. And at the moment, it's at 2.45. So the ICS uh, bank have a 2.45 rate. Right? They put their rate up by 1% on Monday. Yesterday, they just announced the market on a three-year and a five-year fix. They've increased it by a full 1%. That's before the ECB note. And that means if you are paying, if you are paying, if it should be over 25 years in Florida grand. you wouldn't pay about 1,700 a month. You'd never pay 1,900. So overnight, you're looking at a 200 euro per month increase here. Yeah. Uh, if it goes up by another percent, it's you know I mean? there are 400 euro uh, a month, which is nearly 5,000 euro a year. And uh, that brings that rate to 4.45. So I'd be biting the hands off somebody for 2.85. Yeah,
2: now, you know? yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's
6: all relevant. People just need to get advice, reach out to people, yeah. reach out to financial advisors, reach out to mortgage brokers. Okay. Your area. And see what your options are. C-
2: continue on with that example, if you wouldn't mind, Paul. Um, I don't know if you have a calculator or if your mind works that quickly, but you said possibly 6 to 8%. What would it mean for somebody in that circumstance?
6: Oh, it'd be it'd be nearly three grand a month. Ah. You know, and you're going from 1,700 right. to three grand minimum. Like it, it's not yeah. practical. It's no, not
2: practical. No, no, now, we're, here now we're terrified, uh, and yes. I, I'm sure you remember people in the 80s uh, having mortgage interest rates of 15 16%.
6: Yes, I do. Uh, now, as well as that, just on that the 6%, it, 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 again, the, the European Central Bank don't really care about the Irish property market. No disrespect to anybody, but they don't mm. care about what we're paying. They don't care that our banks charge more. Like in Germany, you can currently get a fixed rate for 1% because their banks work in a different way. They borrow for the long term for their for their people rather than our banks borrow on the short term. So, But they, they need to look after the full European Central Banks. They don't care that somebody um in the West of Ireland or anywhere in Orange was be going from a 1700 month to a 2700 because their job in the ECB is just to manage inflation mm. That makes sense. So that's what I'm saying. It, it, they have the control, and this is what this is stuff people should have been taught in school. Mm-hmm. in my the we started the Ask call Instagram page on and, and social media? It's given this information over free, and all the video content we do is because this is stuff you should have been taught in school. Yeah. And this is where people like imagine not knowing this and then just walking blindly into a three or four percent rate increase. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and and that's what could potentially happen. I'm not trying to scaremonger mm-hmm. this morning, but that potentially could happen if inflation doesn't come down. So You've got a lot of commentators saying it will, a lot of commentators saying it mm-hmm. won't. But I would not be putting my family or my house on the line for a flip of a coin or whether it will or won't happen that way.
2: Well, I suppose Uh, a lot of us learned the hard way because of the crash in 2008. Not that interest rates went up, but income uh, stopped for uh, so many people because of uh, the recession that resulted from that. We lost our jobs. And it's the same thing in reverse, really, isn't it? If you haven't got the money to make the repayments, you haven't got the money to make the repayments, uh, and then you're in trouble and you have the... Problem of your house being re- repossessed uh, if the interest rates go up like this, regardless of people continuing to work and having the same level of income, uh, they could be in that position. Would we be seeing a, a, a raft of repossessions?
6: A raft of repossession. That's what David Hall was speaking about, probably in relation to trying to. He like David's an amazing guy. What they do uh, in his house, what they do for people that are in arrears and trying to sort them out for the long term, they won't be able to cope with this next wave. <laughs> They're still only trying to cope with half a seven sales of eight. 2022 mm. now, uh, so yeah, I, I think, and like I said, but people have that they, they can fix. And that is, I think, I think banks should be getting onto this and trying to get all their clients onto fixed rates ASAP and offering longer term fixed rates. Some banks don't go over ten years for, argument's sake, Uh where they all should be, or there should be some type of incentive for the government to try and bring out the better information about fixing your mortgage and fixing your rates. Uh, <laughs> it's the only tool that the consumer has to protect themselves. But also in relation to Don't forget when the cost of borrowing goes up, it goes up for businesses too. So if businesses are borrowing, Mm. uh, which a lot of employers will borrow on an annual basis to fund their business and fund their growth, etc., when the cost of borrowing goes up too high, when the ECB increases, if it does increase highly, it means they can't invest anymore. It means job losses start happening as well. That's where that's where the real economy is. like the real kind of there? Crash comes from, uh, yeah, from the or,
2: or, 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 or they make up the money at the tills, uh, and it's the same with energy or fuel or anything like yes. that. The price of peas goes up as a result, yeah,
6: exactly. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. if what you're into then, unfortunately, uh, this is what really has to, yeah. this is why we're mm-hmm. really on knife edge is that then you still have this really bad inflation happening because they have to keep their prices up because they can't fund anymore. Uh, and then with the public going out or the consumer, the average consumer going to the shops aren't mm. spending anymore because they can't pay their mortgage. And yep. they're trying to just focus
2: on that. Trade but union, think, trade unions meeting today possibly looking for 8% increases. Will that, put, will that put the price of peas up by 8%? It
6: will. But again, yep. th- 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 it's not a hope that will happen yep. yep. because again, because th- you're only increasing salaries and increasing... Cost. By the way, I'm all for of workers here. I'm not yep. trying to say... Yeah, should, yeah, yeah, no, I know. I know. Yeah. I, I just can't see them getting get, getting that through because employers are. then I mean, look again, I'm not to get into kind of nonsensical to so ball together, but then you are looking at the auto enrollments where the government are trying to get employers uh, and people to go into an auto enrollment pension scheme in the next few years, where yeah. they put four or six percent in over the next few years into the pension plan. Like, that's not going. That's going to be shelved and long finger as well. So all these things have a massive fallout. But what I have to say, Danny, listen to this one: you have to look after your own house you can't be relying on government, you can't be relying on the ECB because unfortunately, and uh, not being too harsh here, they don't really care about your personal finances. They care about the overall health of the European Union and they're going to make decisions because we're in Europe that are going to massively affect your back pocket but don't let them <laughs> speak. Reach yeah. out to a financial planner, talk about your finances, get your house in order yourself, fix your mortgage for them long term. Make sure you have a bit of a cash reserve if you can um, and, and just be, be really, really cautious over the next 12 to 18 months. And hopefully we avoid a recession. Hopefully inflation naturally comes down um, and hopefully rates only go to maybe 1, 1.5% and don't continue going up into next year and the 2024.
2: All right. Let's hope against hope. Paul, thank you. Thank, thank you very, you. very, very much for joining us this morning. That's Paul Merriman, CEO of askpaul.ie and Pax Financial.
6: Michael Bethel- Reed
2: on LMFM. Signed now, as is usual around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As always, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navin Station joins us for the report this week. We're going to start in Hill of Down with a, a burglary that occurred there. A quite uh, a concerning incident, uh, this an aggravated burglary that occurred at
8: Yes, good morning Michael. We're starting with an aggravated burglary on Monday the 16th of May, so that was just yesterday, between 12 noon and 3pm at Kilnagalia in Hill of Down. Now the Guardian trim are appealing to anyone who is in the area who may have CCTV footage dash cam footage, or just seeing anyone suspicious, to please contact Trim Garda Station with this information. They're very keen to progress this investigation.
2: OK, we've a, a number of burglaries uh, this week, but we've a, another aggravated burglary to report on next. This happened in Dundalk.
8: That's right. On Sunday the 15th of May between 10.30 and 11pm at Batchers Walk in Dundalk, Gardaí received a call that a female had been robbed in her home. Two males had forced their way in. One was armed with a large knife and the other with a baton. And she was struck over the head and punched, causing her to fall to the ground and lose consciousness. And a large sum of money and her phone were stolen. Now, this was a particularly traumatic um, experience for the female involved. So the guardian and Dundalk are appealing to listeners this morning to please make contact if they have any information, or indeed use the Guardian confidential line on 1800 travel six travel one.
2: Now to Oath, uh, where guarder are investigating a theft.
8: That's right. Last Tuesday, the 10th of May, between the hours of 11 a.m. and 8 p.m., a horse trailer was stolen from Tattersalls on the Ferry House Road in Ratoth. So the trailer was attached to a vehicle, and when the owner returned, it had been removed. It's a blue, silver, Eiffel Williams horse box of significant value. And if any listeners this morning think they have seen this trailer or maybe have been offered it for sale, to please contact Ashburn Gardie. And just to recap, it was taken last Tuesday, the 10th of May, between 11 a.m. and 8 p.m
2: to Navin for the next report of a a burglary.
8: Yes, in the early hours of Tuesday the 10th, uh, between 2 and 3 a.m., a house in Clonmageddon Fort in Navin was burgled. And when the homeowner returned, uh, they noticed that the lock had been removed from the garden shed and a number of items were stolen, over €2,000 worth of power tools. So if anyone in the Clonmageddon area of Navin saw or heard anything suspicious, around 2 to 3 a.m. on Tuesday the 10th of May, to please make contact with Navengardi.
2: Okay, we're in Dundalk next uh, to report on a robbery from a person.
8: Yes, again on Tuesday the 10th of May, around 3.30pm on Key Street in Dundalk, a male reported that he had been attacked. He had collected his doll money and was getting into a taxi when three males approached him and attacked him. They took his money and his phone and then left the area. So Guardian and Dundalk are appealing for any witnesses to this incident to get it happen on Key Street in Dundalk on the 10th of May, that's this day last week, at approximately 3.30pm.
2: Okay, and we conclude with a burglary, this one in Rathoth.
8: Yes, on Sunday the 15th of May between 230 and 3.30am, a a house on the Curraha Road in Rathoth was broken into and the keys of two vehicles were taken and the vehicles subsequently stolen. A dog was also taken from the house, a blue Stafford Bull Terrier, along with a laptop um, so the Guardian and Ashburn are investigating this burglary and would appreciate any help from listeners this morning and just a reminder to everyone there are lots of home security and vehicle security tips on the Mead Crime Prevention, Crime Prevention Facebook page and on the Garda website Garda.ie
2: Alright, before you leave us uh, maybe I should tell you to get on your bike
8: That's right National Bike Week uh, is running from the 14th to 22nd of May and just have some advice this morning on bicycle security. So you should spend approximately 10 to 20% of the value of your bike on locks. Uh, you should lock your bike indoors or in a well-lit area if possible. And when locking your bike, secure it to a heavy immovable object and keep the lock off the ground. Uh, take a photo of your bicycle and note the serial number and keep these safe. And if your bike is stolen, report it to the Gardaí as soon as possible with the serial number. And again, there's more information on this on the Mead Crime Prevention Facebook page.
2: Garda, Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around at the same time on next Tuesday's programme Before we leave you today, let's hear from Gronia. thanks for your call, Grania in Drogheda, who says, I can't understand why there's no real sense of urgency to build local authority housing estates to try and get people off the housing list and free up housing in the rental sector. So many people are on HAP schemes waiting for a house and this is placing pressure on the rental market. It must, be costing a fortune for all of the HAP recipients, especially at the price being charged now for rent. The government needs to get building. Uh, thanks, as they say, for that Grania. Thanks too to John, who's in Drogheda as well. And he says in New Zealand and Australia, they have retirement villages for people over 60. Is that not an idea that uh, we could follow here in order to free up some houses? I suppose it is. But do people want uh, to live in these villages is another question, John. But thanks uh, for the suggestion. Thanks to anybody who was in touch with us today, that's our programme. Uh, as we run out of time, God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye.
1: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie